If you would, take your Bibles. I encourage you to open them to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 39. This summer we've been going through this marvelous book, taking snippets of the book because it's there's no way to go through the entire book chapter by chapter as we often do with books here, but that wasn't possible over the summer. But today we come to the end of our study, the last in the series, and I've been known in my lifetime especially in school, I would read the first chapter or two of a book and then skip to the end and read the last chapter. And uh, if it intrigued me, I might go back and catch in the middle, but uh, often that was as far as I got. If we went looking for the end of Jeremiah's story and we went to the end of the book, which is chapter 52, and we think after we've read it, we've read the end, we missed it. Because actually the end of Jeremiah's story is not in chapter 52. Remember, this book is not chronological. Uh, we find the end of his story actually in chapter 44. And today what we're going to do is, I was so excited last week that I went through four chapters on a Sunday and uh, we weren't here the rest of the day, which was good. So I decided we'd try today to go five, a world record. Okay, five chapters uh, we're going to go through Jeremiah 39 through 44. To do that, we're not going to do as we often do and go verse by verse and read the whole passage. We obviously could, can't do that. So what we're going to do is I'm going to talk us through the story, the storyline, as we look at the end of what is here in Scripture of Jeremiah's life and ministry. And then hopefully we will find some very practical and... Uh, and important lessons here in the book. Let's just pray as we begin our study. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for your word that you give us to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us, to teach us of you. It is here through your word that we come to know you. So, Father, we ask that we would have willing hearts and attentive minds that you would open our spiritual eyes, that here we might see you, that we might be changed through our time with you this morning and through your word. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I do, again, I encourage you to have your the Bible open because at first it may not seem like, you know, it seems like we'll just be, I'll talk and you just listen but we will get to where we'll be reading some passages, and I think it'll help you to have it open. As Jeremiah 39 opens, Jerusalem is under siege. If you've been here the last two weeks, in both weeks, Jerusalem has been under siege. The armies of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar have surrounded the city. The siege towers are in place. They are shut up, caged like animals at the zoo. We noted a couple of weeks ago that after decades of warnings, God's offers to the people of Judah at this time to repent and to avoid His judgment and to receive mercy instead, God's offers of that have, have, have passed. The people have simply refused to turn from their sin and wickedness, and God's judgment now is certainly coming 
It's just a matter of time before the last hammer falls. If you've been with us for a while, you know that it's over the last 20 years, there have already been two invasions by Babylon and people taken captive. But this time is the end. As the siege wears on, the situation inside of the city grows more and more desperate by the day. People are dying of starvation and disease. In Jeremiah's book of Lamentations, we see Jeremiah describing a scene that it is so horrible at the last days of the siege that some of the mothers have been driven to eating their children to survive. So now in chapter 39, as it begins, we learn that after 18 months of siege, in the summer of 586 B.C., the Babylonians were finally able to break through, to breach the walls of Jerusalem. And the armies of Babylon flooded the city. At that time, King Zedekiah, along with some of the military leaders and some soldiers, in the night, they sneak out of the city through a secret passageway and between the walls and, and outside underground, and they make their way down the Hinnom Valley, down to the River Jordan Valley, there in the center of Israel, going down, down to what used to be known as Jericho. Jericho, you recall, was... It was the very same place where 900 years before this, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down as the old song went. That's where they were headed on their way, I think, probably to Ammon. The forces of Nebuchadnezzar realized quickly that the king and others had escaped. They sent a detachment after them and they caught up to them there in the plains of Jericho. After they caught them, they then took the king and others that were with him and they took them some 200 miles up to the north, up to Riblah, because Riblah was where King Nebuchadnezzar was encamped and there he was directing from there all the battle down to the south. There they took King Zedekiah, showed him no mercy as they brought his songs. Zedekiah was only in his 30s at this time. His sons were probably then rather young. They brought all his sons before him and one by one executed his sons before his eyes. Then they gouged his eyes out, put him in chains to haul King Zedekiah back to Babylon as a captive. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the Babylonians destroyed the city. They burned and leveled the temple. They they burned the king's palace. They began destroying all the homes, both the big mansions and the, the little peasants' homes all through the city. They tore down every building, every fortification. They tore down the walls all around the city, reduced the city to rubble and ash. Then they took all the survivors from Jerusalem and those from all over Judah that they could find. They rounded them up. And they took them to a place just a few miles north of Jerusalem, a place called Ramah. If you were around last year when we were in the book of Samuel, Ramah was Samuel's birthplace, his hometown, the prophet Samuel, about 
800 years or so before this. There in Ramah, they assembled these prisoners into long lines, chained them together, prepared these thousands upon thousands and thousands of prisoners to march to Babylon 500 miles away. Can you imagine being what that entailed? King Nebuchadnezzar, once he got word that, the, that Jerusalem had fallen and all the prisoners were being gathered, he, he sent a special command to his leaders to locate and find among the prisoners, if he was alive, to find the prophet Jeremiah. And the orders were, if you find him, treat him well. You see, they were aware that Jeremiah, for all this time, had been preaching about the destruction of Judah. They had been preaching about how God was judging the nation of Judah. And that Babylon would prevail. And so just as some of the Jews had taken those prophecies and considered Jeremiah to be a traitor to Judah, the Babylonians considered those prophecies and thought, Jeremiah is pro-Babylon. And so they decided to treat him nicely. By the way, let that just be a word. If you ever serve God faithfully, sooner or later, some people will misunderstand you. Both those outside the faith and those inside the faith prepare to be misunderstood. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't pro-Babylon or anti-Judah. He simply was a faithful messenger of God. Well, that's chapter 39. Chapter 40, Nebuzaradan, who is the captain of the guard, he located Jeremiah. He found him chained among the prisoners there in Ramah. He released Jeremiah, gave him rations of food, for I'm sure it had been a while since they had eaten, gave him a gift of some value, a present. And then he gave Jeremiah choices. He said, Jeremiah, you are welcome to come with us to Babylon. And I promise you that you will be well treated from now on. Personally, I will guarantee your safety. And when we get back to Babylon, make sure that all the days of your life you are well cared for. Or you are free to go anywhere in the world you want to go. You may go. Or if you choose, you may stay here in the land of Judah under Governor Gedaliah. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had decided to leave a small remnant of the Jews there in the land of Israel. He was going to leave them there to work the land and to make the land productive. And so orders were given to go through the, all of these now captives and to find the poorest of the poor, to find the, the lowest of the low, and then to set them free. And these poor people, these, these low people were given farms and they were given fields and they were given vineyards and they were told to go and to live in the land and to make it productive. And since Jerusalem had been demolished, they chose Mizpah to be the governmental center now in the land of Israel. Mizpah was a place that the ancient prophet Samuel had, had made, used as a home base for his ministry. Now it was established as the, the new 
governmental center for the remnant of Israel. As the Babylonian forces withdrew, Nebuchadnezzar not only left this, these remnant of Jews, but he also left a small contingent of soldiers to keep the peace and to keep the order. And he appointed Gedaliah to be the governor of these remnant. Gedaliah was a Jew whom he chose. About 20 years earlier, if you look up who Gedaliah is, about 20 years earlier, his father was a man who saved Jeremiah from death. You see, Jeremiah had been preaching faithfully as he always did, and his preaching upset a lot of people. He upset uh, government officials and he upset religious leaders. What he had to say wasn't popular. God is going to judge this nation if you do not turn away from your sin and start following God. And so some of these leaders and religious officials decided that they wanted to shoot the messenger and have Jeremiah killed. But this man, Ahikam, saved Jeremiah's life. And this new governor, Gedaliah, was, is Ahikam's son. Gedaliah's grandfather, if you go back 50 years, was a, name, a man named uh, Shaphan. And Shaphan served as a godly and good assistant to the godly king Josiah, the last of the good kings of Judah. And that was during the early days of Jeremiah's ministry. And so perhaps because Jeremiah has had a great experience with this family, with Gedaliah's father and grandfather, or perhaps just because Jeremiah has the heart of a pastor and he is concerned about the poor in the land, Jeremiah elects to stay there in Israel with the remnant. Over the next month, as word got out that Nebuchadnezzar had established a Jewish governor there in the land and he had committed the poor and the low to his care. Refugees who had run for the hills and hidden in the hills and in the caves began to come out and come to Mizpah. Others who had fled to neighboring countries, to Moab and to, to Ammon and other places began to, to come back and they began to come to Mizpah and began to settle in the land. Commanders of Jewish forces, little detachments of soldiers who had been serving out in the countryside and had managed to escape capture by the Babylonian forces, they now began to come out of the hills and the country and came to Mizpah. And so Gedaliah, sometime after the armies are gone, some months later, he addresses this surviving remnant here in chapter 40. Look down in verse 9 and we see what he says. Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. That's another word, by the way, for Babylonians. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. So he tells the, these soldiers to go and live in the cities that you protected he tells the poor in the land, go and live on the fields you've been given. Be productive. So they did. And about a year after Jerusalem was destroyed, it tells us here in chapter 39, 
the end of the summer, as fall came on, they reaped a great abundant harvest of summer crops, fruits, olives, and wine. Things were finally looking up for these survivors. However, not everyone was simply ready to submit, cave in to Babylon. There was a man named Ishmael who, was a, who had survived. He was a member of the royal family and he had survived and, and gone over and was living in, hiding out in Ammon. And there over in Ammon, off to the east of Israel, the king of Ammon began to talk in the ear of this man Ishmael and said, you know, you need to go assassinate Governor Gedaliah. They viewed him, you see, as a traitor. He was a puppet of Babylon. And you see, Ammon had been in, in alliance with King Zedekiah, the last king of Israel. Then, and they were the ones who, who started this little uprising. They caused Nebuchadnezzar to come back and to destroy everything anyway. And they just weren't ready still to cave. So chapter 41, a little while later, Ishmael comes to pay a visit to Governor Gedaliah. A little friendly visit with ten of his friends. They've known each other, knew each other long before this. But during dinner, it says, they rose up and they killed Gedaliah. And they killed all the others who were serving in the little provisional government there, who were there at dinner. And they killed all the Babylonian soldiers who apparently had been invited to dinner as well. They killed anyone that could, could have been a witness to this. That was in the, in the evening. No one had still found out in the morning and they were getting ready to leave. And 80 men from the north came, 80 Jewish men, bedraggled and weary and worn. And they were, they were dressed in mourning. And they were headed down to the ruins of Jerusalem to go down to the ruins of the temple to offer sacrifices to God out of mourning and sadness for the judgment that has come upon their land. And they happened to stop in there at Mizpah to see Gedaliah. And this man Ishmael and his men used treachery to deceive these guys and they slaughtered them. Then they took all the people who were in the area there of Mizpah and they took them as hostages, as captives. And they began to take them away. Well, out in the cities was the, the commanders of these forces. The, the one that's named here is Johanan. Johanan was one of those former you know, army officers. And as soon as he got word of what had happened back at Mizpah, he sent the alarm out to his buddies, other commanders. And they gathered the soldiers they could and they began to go off in pursuit of Ishmael to try to rescue the people of Mizpah. They caught up to them just a little south and west of Mizpah, near the pool, it says, of Gibeon. As soon as they came over the hill and they caught sight of Ishmael and all the people of Mizpah, it says the people of Mizpah saw them and they were, they were ecstatic and there they, was a great shout, Yes! We're saved! And they, they all cheered and they began to run towards Johanan. In the process of that though, Johanan and the soldiers couldn't get to Ishmael and his men and they escaped. 
He and eight of the men, apparently two of them, they got. And those guys went back to Ammon and got away. And now Johanan finds himself in a position he never desired to be. He's in charge now not only of his little group of soldiers, but of all of these survivors. All of these folks who had been through all of the, the Babylonian invasion, they've been through the, the captivity and, and then released from their chains and then settled in the land. And they've, got, they've been through a lot of stuff over the last few years. And now he's in charge. And everybody's looking at him. What do we do now? It tells us that they traveled south to a place near what we, a town we know, Bethlehem. They went there to figure out what's the plan. What are we going to do next? They were now terrified of the Babylonians since the governor that that King Nebuchadnezzar had established has been killed, since the soldiers that he left there have been killed. What will King Nebuchadnezzar do? He will most assuredly send an army here and he will exact revenge upon us. So the people said, The only thing that makes sense is we run as far as we can from Babylon and we're going to run down to the south into the arms of Egypt and there we can be safe. Chapter 42. Somewhere in this process, the people realize, hey, we've got a prophet here. Jeremiah had been there in Mizpah and he had been taken captive and now he's there among them and they decide, you know, it just might be a good idea to ask God, what should we do now that we are here in a desperate place? After all, Jeremiah has been preaching for 40 years and he's never been wrong. He predicted accurately Judah's destruction and captivity. And he said, years before Babylon was ever even a big power, he said it would be Babylon who would do it. And he accurately predicted the demise, the the fates of the last four kings of Judah. You know, it would make sense to go to him and find out what we should do. And so, chapter 42, verse 1, look and see. Then all the commanders of the forces and Johanan, the son of Korea, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near. And they said to Jeremiah, the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord, your God, for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few. As far as your eyes see us, that the Lord, your God, may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. And so Jeremiah agrees to pray on their behalf and to tell them to give them the unvarnished truth. Whatever God says, I'll tell you. By the way, he always did that. Verse 5. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends to us. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And if you've been with us this summer all the way through this book, 
as we read this, wow, relief. Finally. Finally, it's only taken 40 years, but finally, after 40 years of Jeremiah preaching and warnings, and after actually a couple of centuries before that of, of God's warnings of judgment because of their sin, after three invasions of Babylon, after so much suffering, after so much death, after so much destruction, finally, we've got a remnant of these people, and they say, whatever God says, we'll do it. Yeah, they are really slow learners, but better late than never, right? Lesson number one here, brothers and sisters, out of four lessons I want us to note this morning. God is so amazing with His grace and patience. After ten days, Jeremiah calls them together with God's answer. God offers them mercy and blessing. Look there in verse 9 of chapter 42. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before Him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your land. Good news! God says, relax, folks. Stay put. I will give you mercy. And so Nebuchadnezzar will have mercy on you. I will build you. I will plant you. I will prosper you here in your own land. Trust me. Awesome news. God also gives a dire warning. The next verse is verse 13. But if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, and saying we will go to the land of Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go there to live, then the sword that you fear will overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow you close after you to Egypt. And there you shall die. If you refuse to trust me and stay here, God says, then when you go to Egypt you will receive everything that you fear here. You'll get it there and you'll die in Egypt. God is giving this last remnant of rebellious Judah one final opportunity to trust Him. Trust Him and be blessed. The only thing they have to do really is nothing. How simple can it be? Just stay here and live. And everything will be well. So obviously, the people listen to God. Right? It's what they promised. 
chapter 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie! Really? The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt and live there. But Baruch, remember him from about a month ago? Jeremiah's secretary. Your secretary has set you against us to deliver us to the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile to Babylon. That's their answer. Jeremiah has never lied to them. He has never not told the truth. And he's never been wrong with what he said. And they said, whatever God says, we'll do. Good or bad. We have learned our lesson. Okay, stay here. Liar! Now, before we're so hard on these folks who have just made a really bad choice, how often have we said, God, I will do whatever you say. God, I'm yours. I'm your man. I'm your woman. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Honor your father and mother. I don't think so. Love your wife. Nope, don't think so. Love your husband. Nope. Tell the truth. Nope. Do good to your enemy. Love your enemy. (laughs) You're right. Do good to those who mistreat you. Are you serious? See, we'll, we'll tell God, I am yours. I'll do anything you say until what God says goes against what we want. Until God's agenda goes against our agenda, and then we have excuses. We have reasons. We have other plans. At least I do. Do you struggle with that ever? A lot? (laughs) Mm. So I find when I point my finger at them, i got three fingers pointing back at me. They arrive in Egypt. They go to Egypt. They arrive there. Chapter 43, verse 8 through 13. They get there and God speaks through Jeremiah again. And He says, Nebuchadnezzar will come here to Egypt. and He's going to set up his tents over these places here. He will conquer Egypt. And He will do the very things to you here that you were afraid He was going to do to you there. Because you wouldn't listen. Chapter 44. The first 14 verses, God speaks again another time through Jeremiah. And He says, you've seen the judgments that I did to all the folks back in Judah. You heard all the warnings again and again and again. For 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you knew it was coming. You knew why it was coming. And it came. And you didn't listen. And now I told you don't come here or what would happen. And now you still came here. Look at verse 7, what he said. Why do you commit this great evil 
against yourselves. And they commit great evil against God. But God says, when you commit evil against me, guess what happens? You're committing evil against yourself. But notice the tone. Why? Matter of fact, when you read it, it's why? Why? Why are you doing this? Those of you who are parents, do you hear the voice of a frustrated parent with a stupid toddler? <laughs> no! If you keep doing that, <laughs> spanking. No! <laughs> I'm telling you, if you do this, you're going to get a spanking. Do you want a spanking? No! What's going to happen if you keep doing this? Spanking! <laughs> Do you want a spanking? No! Then stop. No! <laughs> if you've never been there, you never had a strong-willed child. <laughs> Those of us who do have been there. And as a parent, you're pleading, I don't want to punish you. I don't want to give you a spanking. Right? That's the tone here with God. Why are you doing this? Why is God continuing to give warnings to this remnant after He has told them, don't go there, or here's what's going to happen. They get there twice after they've gotten there. God has said, here's what's going to happen. Why does God do that? Because there's an implicit invitation. Even there in Egypt, after their continued rebellion, God is giving them more opportunity to change their mind and to say, God, we're stupid, aren't we? God, we're wrong. Forgive us. You know what God would give them? Grace. I read this and I think, what a gracious, merciful, patient God. It is as the prophet Ezekiel said, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God is pleading with him, Don't do this. Still today, as Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. One more opportunity, one more day for one more person. Brothers and sisters, we have a gracious God who longs to see people find life instead of death. Second lesson here, though, is that I realize that our sinful hearts as humans are unbelievably stubborn. We start that way as children, which is why we have those showdowns with our kids, with our toddlers. These people, hearing God cry out to them there in chapter 43, saying, why, why, why? Or 44. 
In verse 15 through 19, they just double down, these people. Verse 16, they say, look, says, no, we won't listen to you. Just like a toddler, isn't it? In other words, we will worship all the idols we want. And God, we don't care what you think. Then with a badly flawed memory and bad reasoning, they declare, you know, when we worshipped idols, the Queen of Heaven, that's Ishtar, and we worshipped all these idols and did all these things, we had everything we wanted. And now we got nothing. You know, the problem isn't that we worshipped idols. The problem is we haven't been worshipping idols enough. They have misread everything. They came to the exact 180 degree opposite wrong conclusion of reality. Which is, as I have said many times, sin kills brain cells. It's exactly why we can be in the depths of sin and in the depths of stupidity and everybody can see it except us. You will notice that with your friends when they are caught in the depths of stupid stupid sin. Everybody knows that is self-destructive and it's wrong and it's stupid and everybody knows it except them and they will sit there and argue why they're right. Right? And most of us sooner or later have been there. Learn from them. They say, forget you, God, we're done. Oh God, break us of our stubbornness. Break us of our sinful tendencies to rebel against God. Not a one of us is immune from falling into that tomorrow. May God, by His grace, keep us sensible. Lesson three. God is gracious, but God will certainly judge sin. Make no mistake, the Bible is clear. God will judge sin. In verses 20 to 30, we go on down. God begins to lay out. Okay, guys. Verse 25, God says, You and your wives have declared with your voices, with your mouths, and you have fulfilled it with your hands. In other words, you guys, you've said what your intentions are, and your actions are carrying it out, and God goes on to say, if that's what you want, go for it. Go on. Have it your way. But he says up in verse 23, he says, you have brought this upon yourself. God will hold those people accountable who spurn, who shun, who reject His grace. God is so loving, so gracious. He made a way that everyone, that anyone can be saved from their sin. As Jesus said, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
We all love that verse and it's wonderful. So many people just say, yeah, they cling to that verse and they really never make it a little farther down the chapter. It says in verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. God hates sin and He will judge sinners. Any who are not rescued, saved from their sin by faith in Jesus Christ will endure the wrath of God. And I do wrong as a pastor if I call attention to the grace of God, but don't call attention to the reality that God judges sin and point our attention to the one the one provision, the one way that God has provided to rescue us from sin. God Himself became man and bore the penalty of our sin on the cross. What astounding grace and love and mercy. All we need to do is turn to Him. Say, yes, Lord. I trust, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. This morning I ask, have you received Jesus as your Savior? If not, I call you on behalf of God. Be reconciled to God. Be made right with Him through Christ. What a tragic end for this remnant of Judah. They went through so very much. They endured so very much. And yet they learned nothing. They had opportunities for life and for blessing, but they chose stubbornness and rebellion and death because they refused to believe God. These are tragic chapters. And yet in the middle of these chapters... There's this one bright little spot, one surprising person who in these chapters got the message that God said. Back in chapter 40, Jeremiah was there, caught in the lines of prisoners, chained there. As Nebuchadnezzar issued the order, find Jeremiah. And treat him nice because we think he's on our side. And the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, found Jeremiah. And there in chapter 40, look at what he says. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, it's verse 2, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about. And he has done as he said, because you, that's Israel, sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. God's people refused to believe God and learn the lesson that this pagan Babylonian military commander couldn't miss. Yahweh God is God. And this happened to you because y'all wouldn't listen to God. You guys rejected Him. You're idiots. That was, in essence, what He says. 
He understood who was in charge. And he understood their folly. And I don't know how far this man's understanding took him. It's possible he came to faith in Yahweh. We may meet him in heaven one day. You'll have to learn how to say his name. Nebuzaradan. I think that's right. It's probably wrong. Ironically, you see, that's what Israel's mission was. God appointed the people of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to point them and bring them to God. They never did it. Here in their negative example, and in God's judgment of them, this pagan soldier said, Huh, you guys messed up really bad. You didn't believe God. I hope he did. I hope we get to meet him in heaven. Jeremiah was a faithful preacher, and I'm sure that the last people he thought were listening to his messages were the Babylonians. The people he was preaching at wouldn't listen. You know, we ought to keep that in mind. There's a world around us that is watching and listening to us even when we think they're not. And I hope that we are good and faithful teachers and preachers of the good news of Jesus Christ, both in our words and in our actions. Sometimes the people we think are the least likely to ever listen are the ones who are listening most closely. Father, thank You for this Word. It's, it's one we need to hear. It's convicting. It's challenging. It's also encouraging. You are God of such amazing and great grace. May that not ever tempt us to try to take advantage of Your grace and just pursue our own way, thinking we can get away with whatever. Rather, may Your great grace toward us move us to love You more and to follow You obediently and faithfully. May it move us to share this good news of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ with a world that is lost and needs to know Him. Father, may each one of us here this morning, whether we're here in this room, whether we're home, whether we're watching this, five years from now on the Internet. Father, may we each one submit ourselves to You. Love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And make the most of every day we have left before Jesus returns to share the good news with a lost world. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.